everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Darkseed, a third-person point-and-click adventure title developed and published by Cyber Dreams in 1992 for several computer platforms, including MS-DOS, Amiga, Amiga CD32, and Macintosh, with ports to the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn following as Japanese-exclusive releases. We're going to talk about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 76. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have discussions. We do weekly gaming challenges, monthly gaming challenges, prizes, rewards. Everything is out there. If that sounds like a good time, check us out over on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including a bi-weekly exclusive podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numerical rankings or star counts or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. By all means, you should have a great time. They are not quite Pantheon level, but they're still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you all to play those titles today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. It might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broad population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Darkseed. Darkseed. <laughs> 
Darkseed is a third-person point-and-click adventure title developed and published by Cyber Dreams in 1992 for a bunch of different computer platforms with ports to the PlayStation and Saturn following in Japan only. Before we can talk about Darkseed, we need to talk about H.R. Giger, an incredibly influential artist whose work can be seen in countless movies and television shows, with a number of games and other media taking inspiration from his designs and concepts. While Giger would eventually become a household name across the entire globe, back in the 1940s, he was simply a child with a penchant for art looking for a way to express both his unique interests, as well as his fears, via some form of creative outlet. Even from a young age, Giger had a fascination with concepts that can best be described as macabre. Things like skulls, mummies, and other horror-themed concepts and imagery. At the same time, like many children, Giger would occasionally have nightmares where the hidden and unknown that inherently induces anxiety, like rundown city streets, dark alleys, and unlit basements, merged with his fascination of skulls and horror to create imaginary visuals that were terrifying and grotesque. Beyond Giger's imaginary dreams, he was also facing a very real set of fears anchored by the fact that he was growing up in Switzerland during World War II, not all that far from Nazi Germany. He routinely lived in fear during his waking hours, and further observed how his parents reacted to the events occurring around them, and those waking fears, coupled with nightmares he experienced while he slept, gave Giger a wide set of emotions that would form the foundations of his early artwork. And art, even from an early age, was something Giger was incredibly interested in. He would routinely draw out various scenes from his nightmares on paper in an attempt to understand and cope with his fears. So, when Giger began exploring art as a potential career path, it was an entirely natural extension of his personal interests. The only issue was, Giger's father didn't think there was any way he could make a career as an artist. According to Giger's father, who was a pharmacist, by the way, pursuing art as a career was not sustainable, and he believed that Giger would be setting himself up for a life of poverty if he intended to pursue that dream. Giger's father believed that a more reliable profession, so to speak, like his own pharmacological pursuits, was a better, more stable career path. Giger, however, had no interest in becoming a pharmacist, and in 1962, he would move to Zurich, where he studied architecture and industrial design for several years, before graduating and starting a career as an interior designer. It didn't take long, though, before Giger realized that interior design was not where his heart truly lied, and while working as an interior designer as his day job, he returned to his original artistic passions during his off hours, beginning to create a number of ink drawings and oil paintings before progressing to using an airbrush, which would become the primary artistic tool that Giger would end up using for the majority of his future art career. Giger's artwork, similar to that he created as a child, was not what many art aficionados would describe as traditional, as Giger loved intermixing grotesque, nightmarish scenes with the human form, and in particular, he enjoyed combining humanity with machines, a style of art he described as biomechanical. The majority of his artwork at the time depicted chilling scenes of mechanoid humans, complete with exoskeletons and mechanical body parts interspersed with normal male and female features, creating visuals that were incredibly unique and perhaps a bit unsettling. Giger's art portfolio would gradually expand, and by the early 1970s, his work was the subject of various art exhibits that would, eventually, gain the attention of some very influential people, perhaps the most notable of which was surrealist artist Salvador Dali. Dali was intrigued by Giger's art and believed that he possessed a unique visual aesthetic that needed to be seen to be believed. He also thought that Giger's art could, potentially, transcend the art world and make its way into popular culture, which is why Dolly contacted filmmaker Alejandro Jodrowski to suggest that he enlist Giger's help with the creation of the film version of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel Dune, an effort that Jodrowski was in the process of beginning pre-production on. Jodrowski was impressed with Giger's work, and he did, in fact, follow through on Dolly's recommendation, bringing Giger on to work on the film's concept art. Unfortunately, though, that film adaptation would never fully get off the ground. And while this isn't a film review podcast, I do have to mention some of the crazy stuff that brought that Dune adaptation to a grinding halt, which was all driven primarily by the fact that Jodrowski was way too ambitious than what any film studio could possibly support. 
Not only did he want to work with the most creative and talented individuals across the world, like artists Dolly and Giger, but he was also prone to simply saying yes to all of his talent's demands. As an example, Dolly was slated to play the Emperor in the film, a casting decision that Jodrowski was pushing for. Dolly, remember, was an artist, not an actor, though he would agree to play the role in the film. If he was made the highest paid actor in history, which equated to a rate of $100,000 an hour. And the craziest thing is, Jodrowski agreed to Dolly's request. Jodrowski also brought on musical groups that he liked, like Pink Floyd, and recruited Orson Welles to the picture, along with his favorite chef, which was one of Welles' demands in order to join the cast. Jodrowski also envisioned the film as the most epic movie in history, with a proposed runtime of over 14 hours long. Seriously, I am not making any of this stuff up. And because all of those so-called features of the film were, in fact, real things Jodrowski was trying to do or get greenlit, it's not surprising that the film's production company shut down the film, which meant H.R. Giger no longer had a job in cinema. That was okay, though, as Giger would return to the art world once that film shuttered its doors, and would once again begin drawing and creating art for various exhibitions and displays around the world. All of that would change in 1977, when Giger published a collection of his drawings in a book that he called Necronomicon, which itself was a reference to a fictional book of magic originally created by horror author H.P. Lovecraft and used throughout several of his stories. Giger's Necronomicon would be the most fully realized set of drawings and artwork that he ever assembled up to that point, which consisted of his traditional biomechanical imagery depicting humans and various grotesque creatures, like gargoyles, integrated with various machinery in what can best be described as a book full of nightmare fuel. Well, one day, Hollywood director Ridley Scott, who was in the process of working through his own cinematic pre-production schedule for an upcoming movie, was sitting in the waiting room of film production company 20th Century Fox when he came upon a strange book of various artwork and drawings, which was, you guessed it, Giger's Necronomicon. As Scott began flipping through the pages of the book, he realized that H.R. Giger's imagery would be a perfect fit for his new film, a title focused on a crew of astronauts exploring a derelict spacecraft that may have, possibly, been overrun by violent extraterrestrial life. Scott reached out to Giger to join his film crew, and Giger accepted, which is what led to Giger's first realized work on a Hollywood production, as he would become the designer behind the xenomorph that would terrorize the astronaut crew in the Hollywood blockbuster Alien. Giger's work on Alien would earn him an Academy Award for visual effects, and from that point forward, his life was never the same, as his artwork would be sought out by newfound fans, and his artistic stylings would be craved by Hollywood filmmakers to make their movies stand out. Giger had countless opportunities thrown at him after his initial work on Alien, and he and his art would remain in the spotlight, both in Hollywood and within the art world, ever since his seminal effort on the film. Giger's work would end up inspiring individuals across cinema, art, gaming, and various other domains. And one area in particular that warrants mentioning is, of course, the video game industry. Video game developers had long been leveraging cinematic and otherworldly influences to craft the environments and enemies in their games. And as you might imagine, the Alien series of films would spawn a number of efforts that, while not directly tied to the movie, would certainly leverage some of the imagery that Alien made popular. Games like 1987's Contra, where a lot of the larger alien creatures in the game bear more than a passing resemblance to Giger's work, and 1991's top-down shooter computer game Alien Breed, which featured aliens that were effectively a complete clone of Giger's xenomorph designs. Video game designers are always looking for inspiration from other aspects of pop culture, and Giger's work and designs seemed tailor-made to inspire the various creature designs that many video and computer games employ. Inspiration is one thing, but there were also some companies that had far grander plans. Instead of simply using various pop culture figures' work to guide the development and designs of their games, they wanted to work with the pop culture figure, which would hopefully, lend an air of authenticity that other inspired-by works simply could not replicate. 
That general idea was the concept behind the creation of Cyber Dreams, a video game development company founded in 1990 by a man named Patrick Ketchum, an entrepreneur who had previously founded software company Datasoft in 1980 as a means of entering the burgeoning computer software market. Datasoft as a company was not all that successful, with most of their efforts focused on arcade ports as well as licensed titles based on movies and television shows. A quick glance at their gameography reveals literally no titles that I would consider major releases, though they did end up releasing over 50 different games between 1982 and 1987. Datasoft would eventually declare bankruptcy and go out of business, and Patrick Ketchum would move on to begin focusing on other ventures, though he still wanted to remain in the computer and video game space, which is why he decided to start up a new company, Cyber Dreams, in 1990. Unlike many game companies that licensed intellectual property from other creative individuals or based their games on others' work, albeit indirectly, the vision behind Cyber Dreams was to take these creative people, pair them with a video game design team, and create games with their direct involvement rather than just their inspiration. While that concept sounds great in theory, there was just one problem. The team needed to figure out who to work with for their first game. A number of different names were thrown about, but the team eventually decided that a collaboration with H.R. Giger would provide the biggest potential for a fun, engaging game. So the team reached out to Giger with a proposal for him to provide custom artwork for inclusion in a future video game, which intrigued Giger so much that he agreed to join the project. And with that, Cyber Dream's first game entered into development, and with Giger's engagement, work on Darkseed officially began. The actual creation of Darkseed seems to have been a mostly uneventful experience, aside from one conflict that originally arose between Giger and the development team. Giger, as an artist, always wanted his work to be portrayed in the most detailed, best possible light, and when he began working on art for Darkseed, he realized the inherent limitations of computer and video games of the time. Rather than having an unlimited level of detail available to him, he had to fit his art within the confines of Video Graphics Array, or VGA, resolutions, which for computer games in the early 90s meant that the game's artwork would likely have to fit within a 320 by 200 pixel resolution, and could utilize only 256 colors. Giger felt like the low resolution would not be adequate for the artwork he was creating, so he petitioned the team to increase the resolution beyond the default 320 by 200 pixels the game was currently based on. The team, wanting to maintain a positive relationship with Giger, agreed to the change, and ended up increasing the resolution to 640 by 350 pixels, which was a fairly dramatic increase in screen real estate beyond the original plan. There was just one issue. Computer technology around this time was pretty limited, and oftentimes compromises had to be made between resolution and the number of colors available to display in a scene. Nowadays, we don't have to worry about reducing colors in order to maintain a certain resolution, but back in the early 90s, the two were directly tied to each other. So, when the team increased the resolution of the game's visuals, they also had to reduce the total number of colors from 256 per image and screen down to 16 colors. Despite the inherently lower quality in the available color space, Giger agreed with this approach, and he began developing artwork for the game, which would eventually be scanned into graphics workstations to be recolored and formatted to work properly within the confines of a computer's graphical capabilities. While Giger was working on art for the title, the rest of the development team worked on the more technical aspects of the game, like the engine, gameplay elements, story, puzzles, and characters. And speaking of characters... Cyber Dreams had decided early on to use the relatively new technique of digitization to create characters that mimicked real-world actors, or perhaps more accurately, mimicked real-world people. Because Cyber Dreams, as a smaller development studio, didn't have access to real actors to use in their titles, so any characters that would be included in the game needed to be based on, and voiced by, either amateurs or members of the development team. In fact, Darkseed's main character, Mike Dawson, was based entirely on one of the game's primary designers, whose name was, well, Mike Dawson. And the character Mike Dawson looked exactly like the game designer Mike Dawson, because he was literally digitized for inclusion in the game. I admit, I found this somewhat amusing, because there was no effort to mask the fact that the character was based on the person. They were even named exactly the same. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, 
it was just something I found interesting in a could-only-happen-in-the-early-computer-game-industry kind of way. Eventually, Giger and the team would complete their work on the title, and Darkseed would release on the MS-DOS computer platform in 1992, with a port to the Amiga computer ecosystem following shortly thereafter, and even more ports occurring to the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn home consoles as Japanese exclusives. Though interestingly, those Japanese ports were only subtitled. The voice acting in the game used the standard English-recorded dialogue that appeared in the CD-based versions of the American release. More interesting than any of those ports, though, was an unofficial and unlicensed port to the Nintendo's 8-bit Famicom system, which was completed by Chinese company Mars Production in 2001. Yes, I said 2001. A full nine years after its original release, and many years after the Famicom was considered a relevant system amongst the modern gaming community. I did not play that particular version of the title. But I did watch some gameplay videos, and while the game itself was dramatically less detailed, as you might expect given the limitations of the Famicom, it certainly appeared as though there was a fair amount of care given to the port, with a familiar point-and-click interface and nearly every scene and interaction in the game recreated in an 8-bit format. Certain elements of the experience were degraded, like the overall visuals and the music, but the fact that it exists at all is an interesting piece of fairly obscure video game history. Returning our attention to the PC version of the title, upon its release, the game would be fairly well-received, with many critics praising the game's graphics and scary story, with some even claiming that Darkseed was one of the most impressive horror titles of all time, at least as far as 1992 goes. There were some critiques, however, mostly related to the interactivity included in the title, and its reliance on real-time events driving some frustration during gameplay. Despite those critiques, Darkseed would be named the best fantasy role-playing-slash-adventure title of the year by the Software Publishers Association, and several publications would nominate it for Best Adventure Game of the Year honors. Even in later years, Darkseed would widely be recognized for its effective artwork and horror-inducing story, with some publications even naming Darkseed to be one of the scariest games of all time. Darkseed would be successful enough to warrant a sequel, which would release in 1995 on the Windows and Macintosh computer platforms, with ports, once again, to the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn as Japan-exclusive titles. A number of changes would occur during the development of Darkseed 2, such as the fact that no original Giger artwork would be commissioned for the title, though there were a number of pre-existing works that were licensed for inclusion in the game. And protagonist Mike Dawson would no longer be played by real-world game designer Mike Dawson, as he ended up leaving the video game industry entirely after the original Darkseed released, choosing instead to pursue a career in Hollywood, where he ended up writing several episodes of the television show Family Matters, which was most notable for the introduction of Steve Urkel into the pop culture zeitgeist of the 1990s. Unfortunately, we never got an H.R. Giger Family Matters crossover, though I do wonder what that particular collaboration would have looked like were it to have existed. Anyway, CyberDreams as a company would continue developing games after Darkseed released, and would continue to reach out to creative individuals to collaborate with in future titles. Those future titles would most notably include Cyber Race in 1993, a racing title based on designs by Sid Mead, who is most widely known for his work on films like Blade Runner, Aliens, and Tron, with another title being I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream in 1995, which featured the work of American author Harlan Ellison. Future titles based on collaborations with Dungeons & Dragons creator Gary Gygax and horror filmmaker Wes Craven unfortunately never saw the light of day, as CyberDreams would end up going out of business in 1997. Ultimately, CyberDreams enjoyed a brief period of success in the overall history of video and computer gaming, and while the company never became a household name, I do have to commend its focus on seeking out and working with talented individuals who, most likely, would never have worked in the video game industry if not for CyberDreams' efforts. While CyberDreams is no longer relevant in gaming culture, Darkseed does still have a dedicated fan community who continue to praise the game's innovations as a unique point-and-click adventure title, though that game's continued relevance is certainly bolstered due to H.R. Giger's involvement. Despite Giger's death in 2014, his work continues to be an influence in modern gaming, television, and cinema, and he will undoubtedly remain a part of pop culture for countless years to come. While Darkseed is overshadowed by Giger's fame, 
the fact is that the game itself maintains an interesting spot in the overall history of video and computer games. As the first title from an ambitious development studio, it produced the first official collaboration between Giger and a video game company. And while the game might not be a title widely regarded as a classic today, it still, most certainly, deserves to be remembered. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Darkseed today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So Darkseed is, in some ways, a fairly typical third-person point-and-click adventure title, in that you have control over a character, you navigate around different scenes using your mouse to interact with the environment, you pick up and use items, and generally accomplish pretty much anything you want to do in the game's world. What I found interesting, though, was the way Darkseed both embraced what I would consider to be its hardcore adventure game roots, as well as innovated on that formula, albeit not always successfully. We'll talk about that as we go, but for now, let's go over a general overview of Darkseed. When you first start up the game, you're presented with a very brief introductory sequence depicting a dream where your character has an alien embryo implanted in his head, after which he wakes up and, strangely, has a splitting headache. Does this mean that your character's dreams are impacting his waking state? Or was your character not dreaming at all, but rather remembering some sort of alien abduction? Those answers you'll get as you play the game, and I'm not going to spoil them here, but that general framework, needing to find out what the heck is really going on, is what provides the narrative structure for the rest of the game. Like many point-and-click adventure titles, Darkseed's story is split up across several days, three to be exact, and as you progress through the game, different events and locations will become available to you. Unlike many point-and-click adventure titles, however, Darkseed's days are based upon an in-game clock, which means each day is going to progress regardless of what actions you take, with certain events happening at specific times, while others need to be triggered by your own actions sometimes also being tied to specific timed sequences. On paper, this sounds like an intriguing concept, a game where the world exists independent of the player, with any action you take potentially affecting the world from that point forward. In practice, however, things rarely play out as ideally as you'd hope. The way a game with a time-sensitive mechanic should work, from my perspective, is that each playthrough, you unlock additional knowledge or information about what the heck is going on, until eventually you have a full enough picture of the overall story, situation, and world to make your way through the game successfully, almost like an interactive version of the movie Groundhog's Day. You try, you die, you repeat, until eventually you succeed. While that general structure is the core of how Darkseed is designed, there are a number of ways that the game does not respect the player, or seemingly gets joy out of requiring the player to replay the game unnecessarily, until, finally, they figure out the path forward. To best understand what I mean, let's take a look at a generic example of a situation you might find in the game. Let's say you wake up in your house and you start to explore. You recognize that the game's clock is ticking by, but you also don't have any specific schedule info just yet, so you simply pass the time looking around, getting acclimated with the environment. Eventually, the doorbell rings, and you go answer the door and receive a package. Okay, cool. So far, so good. But, let's say you were not home when that package was supposed to be delivered. Maybe, instead of exploring your house for a few in-game hours, you instead decided to head into town. Well, when you get back to your house, you may have missed the package delivery event entirely, and most likely, that package had some critical item needed to progress the game's story. You, though, have no way of knowing you missed anything, 
So you keep playing the game, though things start to feel kind of boring because there is little to no story progression. You're kind of just existing and walking around as the game's world moves on, until eventually you complete, so to speak, the final day of your adventure. And since you didn't really accomplish anything, you simply die and the game restarts. At this point, you might think to yourself, what the heck just happened? So you decide to play the game a second time. This time, you do in fact get the package at the door, which then allows you to see additional story elements and progress the game a bit further. But then, at one point later in the game, you decide to purchase some items from the nearby general store, spending all of your money in the process. Only, it turns out, you didn't buy the correct item. So once again, you have a situation where the story stops progressing, and you simply sit there for the next two in-game days with literally nothing to do, until you die again and restart the experience. Okay, time for playthrough three. Uh, well, you get the point. The issue I have with Darkseed's time-based progression system is that you effectively have no choice as far as how to progress in the game without doing the exact steps that the game expects you to complete. There aren't optional events that you can take part in to learn more about the world's lore. There aren't multiple events occurring at the same time that might require you to choose what to focus on, with the recognition that anything you miss out on will need to be experienced on a subsequent playthrough. There is simply one critical path, and it is 100% time-bound, which feels like the wrong way to implement a time-based progression into a game. Now, that all said, the game was made in 1992, so the technology to implement what truly is an innovative feature like this wasn't readily available. The thing is, though, if you can't do a certain gameplay mechanic justice, should you really include it in your game? I know that's a rhetorical question, but for me, the general answer to that is usually no. That's not to say that I didn't find the time-based progression mechanic intriguing, and once I figured out what the game wanted me to do and how it wanted me to play it, I ended up having a good amount of fun, even with repeated playthroughs, as I slowly made my way further and further into the game. Beyond that time progression mechanic, which was unique, though flawed, Darkseed's designers decided to inherit the hardcore gameplay mechanics of old-school Sierra Adventure titles, which is to say, dead ends and player death are prevalent throughout the experience. Now, I want to clarify that I have no issue with adventure games including player death as a core mechanic, as long as those deaths are telegraphed in some way to make them avoidable for an observant player. One of my favorite examples of a totally bogus player death is in Sierra's original King's Quest, where if you approach a certain rock from the wrong side of the screen, you suddenly die. Well, Darkseed has similar, albeit not quite as absurd, deaths that you could potentially stumble upon. The one example that comes to mind immediately is a mid-game sequence that involves pulling a lever, which is a fairly common task in most games. The first time I went to pull this particular lever, I simply clicked on the item and chose to use it, which in most games would have moved the lever into a new position. Not so in Darkseed, though, as apparently this lever had an active electric current passing through it, which, as you might have guessed, resulted in my swift death as the game unceremoniously restarted itself. Trust me, I did not make that mistake again, and I bet I got a ton of odd looks as I used heavily insulated leather gloves to touch every other object in the game. But hey, at least I learned my lesson. And for what it's worth, I never did get electrocuted again. I admit, though, it's entirely possible I missed some sort of electrical spark that would have clued me into the dangerous lever. And if so, that is truly on me. Beyond player deaths, though, the bigger issue is the sheer number of dead ends that you have no way of knowing may or may not have occurred until you eventually get to the end of the game and realize that you messed up. Off the top of my head, some of the dead ends I experienced include not answering the phone quickly enough, neglecting to pick up a two-pixel-wide item lying on a nondescript floor, not buying the appropriate item at the general store, not inspecting a certain world hotspot multiple times to find a hidden item, spending too much money on non-essential items, not realizing which three items are critical to the endgame, not realizing I could even hide items in a certain location, not realizing I needed to move a certain object in my attic in order to unlock a required shortcut later in the game, and probably several others that I can't recall right now. Suffice it to say, this game is dead and central, and trying to play through it without referencing a guide requires a degree of fortitude that I would wager not many gamers want to dedicate to this title. 
Luckily, there is a traditional save game system included with Darkseed, so in many cases, you do not have to restart the game entirely if you fail. But at the same time, because of the number of potential failure states, you'll probably need to play the game like I did, saving your progress every couple minutes in the event you hit a situation that requires some degree of rolling back your progress. It's certainly a viable way to play the game like that, but I feel like the whole thing could have been simplified, or maybe streamlined a bit, which would have improved the experience dramatically. This kind of gameplay was fairly commonplace in adventure titles in the 80s, but in the early 90s, companies like LucasArts had begun the shift to less punishing gameplay mechanics. It feels like Darkseed inherited the older school method of adventure game design, which is totally fine, as long as you know what you're getting into when you boot up the game. Anyway, beyond the time mechanics and the overall old-school design, Darkseed is a fairly traditional point-and-click adventure title, with perhaps the most interesting feature being the fact that the normal world you begin the game in is mirrored in an alternate dimension known as the Dark World, which is where the game most directly utilizes H.R. Giger's artwork and designs. To beat the game, you need to solve puzzles in both locations, and there are certain puzzles where doing something in one world will impact the same location in the other world. Generally speaking, I like these kind of cause-and-effect puzzles, so I thought that interconnectivity between the two dimensions was a nice touch. In some instances, even characters have Dark World versions of themselves, which, while not explicitly stated, is another design decision that I found intriguing. I kind of wish there was more story and exposition included here, though, and in fact, the entire game could serve with being longer and more fleshed out than what it was. Darkseed, as designed, is a fairly short experience, and the only reason it lasts as long as it does, which is only a couple hours for a successful playthrough, is because you need to wait for the game's internal clock to progress to certain points before you can continue the story. Otherwise, the only aspect of the title that adds any appreciable length to the experience is the fact that you'll die and fail a good number of times, so those trial and error playthroughs add some time to the gameplay. What I would have preferred was more story and lore. I felt like there was a lot of untapped potential, and even with the game's shortcomings, I found myself wanting more. We're going to talk more about my specific thoughts on different aspects of the game in just a minute, but first, as we always do, we need to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the boxes for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, especially around this time, because we did not have a pervasive internet. We did not have YouTube to look up gameplay videos or get others' opinions. We certainly had magazine articles, but a lot of times, our buying decision was based on what the box looked like and what was written on the back of the box, literally in real time, standing there in the game store. So, for Darkseed... For the personal computer, MS-DOS platform, the back of the box says Darkseed. Darkseed is based upon the fantastic artwork of Swiss surrealist H.R. Giger, the inspiration for such blockbusters as Alien, Alien 3, and Poltergeist 2. Giger has revolutionized the look of science fiction forever with his unique biomechanical style, which depicts the synthesis of technology and biology as they might evolve without the influence of man. An adventure you'll never forget. Challenge your mind. You are Mike Dawson, a science fiction writer who just purchased an old Victorian house. As you explore your new home, you soon discover that you have bought more than you bargained for. Control the fate of two worlds, the world as we know it and the dark world of an ancient and dying civilization. Unlock the secret of a sinister plot and discover the dark passage to their world, a place more terrifying than your darkest nightmare. Time is running out. You are on a collision course with destiny, and only you have the ability to save yourself and the world from a cruel and inhuman fate. Every decision may be your last, so choose wisely. All of humanity is depending on you. And then there are some features and bullet points that say, stunning full-color high-resolution graphics, hauntingly realistic voices and sound effects, movie-like storyline with twists, no typing, easy point-and-click interface, exciting real-time animation, explore over 75 locations, an original soundtrack, and terrifying nightmare sequences. 
And then there are a few pictures and screenshots on the back of the box. And I've got to say, this box actually really worked for me. I think that it definitely created a picture of intrigue and made you think, well, what is going on here? And I've got to say, though, beyond the back of the box, which I thought did make the game sound interesting, the front of the box is what sells me on it, which features a very large image from H.R. Giger's artwork. And if you see this on the computer shelf or on the store shelves at a computer store, which I did when I was younger, your immediate thought has got to be, oh, what the heck is that? It's the kind of box artwork that makes people stop and do a double take because it is so kind of grotesque, weird. You, you're going to pick up the box because you have no idea what the heck is going on. And interestingly, the box does feature H.R. Giger's name prominently on the front of the box. So if you see that, you see the image, you probably have an understanding of what's going to be going on here. But if you're just walking by the shelf in a store and you see this image, I can almost guarantee you you're going to stop and pick up the box. So from my perspective, the front of the box really accomplished that. You flip it over, look at the back of the box. That's pretty darn interesting, too. Anyway, we're going to now start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. So Darkseed's graphics are a strange mix of higher than standard resolution, which is nice, coupled with fewer than standard colors, which is not so nice. As I played the game, I found the graphics to evoke different emotions depending on which scene I was navigating. There were some areas, like a couple of roads that lead from your house into town or to a surrounding cemetery, that almost took on a painterly quality, which I found interesting. There were other areas, like the aforementioned cemetery and your house, that do look a bit lower detail than what I would have liked. And then there are some areas, like the Dark World, where the graphics were entirely obscured by the intense lack of color. Look, I get it. The Dark World is meant to be a dark alternate dimension, and I would fully expect the Dark World to have less color and be more rundown and dingier than its real-world counterpart. Stylistically, I'm on board. But visually, the Dark World ended up letting me down, because the graphics were so drab that I couldn't even fully appreciate H.R. Giger's artwork and designs. What was there, and what I could see, was pure Giger but I felt like the game let that artwork down. From my perspective, it could have been incorporated a lot better. Now, I would be remiss in not mentioning, though, that H.R. Giger's artwork itself was oftentimes monochromatic or lacking in color, so technically, the Dark World did mimic Giger's style effectively. The issue is that the general pixelation driven by the lower-resolution visuals of 1992 did not mesh well with that lack of color, which caused the details of that style to look lower quality in comparison to standalone works by Giger. I don't knock the designers for trying, I just longed for more details than the game was able to provide. That being said, the cutscenes that play in between days are actually a bit better than the Dark World's design, as they're able to utilize more of the screen's real estate to depict their otherworldly and off-putting designs. The cutscenes are nothing to write home about, and they are relatively short, almost slideshow-level experiences, but from my perspective, they show Giger's artwork in the best light. As far as actually moving about the world, animations throughout the title are pretty stiff and lack any degree of smoothness or polish. This is an area where I felt like the team really could have stepped it up, but didn't. I completely understand the color limitations due to the increased resolution of the graphics, but I do not get the subpar animations for the characters. There are plenty of adventure titles that had similar color restrictions from years prior that created meaningful animations for moving around the environment, or for interacting with other characters, so I feel like this is something that was well within the team's grasp to get right, but they ultimately dropped the ball. The other element I need to mention as it relates to the graphics is that there are a couple of items that are almost entirely hidden and obscured by the low-quality colors on display, creating a need to pixel hunt to find an interactable hotspot. The bigger issue, though, is that a normal person playing the game is likely to not even realize there's potentially an item to be found in the areas where these pixel hunts occur. In one instance, which occurs after moving a chest out of the way of a hidden passage, there's an unnecessary item that you can pick up if you notice it, so while annoying, at least that item isn't required to complete the game. 
There is one other item, though, that is entirely missable. And if you do miss it, you cannot beat the game. That one is even more obscure than the unnecessary item. And I'm not lying when I say the overall size of the item is literally two pixels wide. Now, I admit I played this one on a modern machine using emulation because I do not have a hard copy of this particular game. So it's entirely possible that on a CRT, the item would be more noticeable. If anyone has any experience there, let me know. I'm not going to spoil which items I'm talking about, but I would wager a guess that anyone who has played the game knows exactly which items I'm referring to. Overall, the graphics were a bit subpar from my perspective, even when looked at from a 1992 standpoint. When looked at through a modern lens, the graphics appear even worse. Moving on to the sound and music, I need to preface this by saying that I truly enjoy early synthesized music that typically would accompany games from the 80s and early 90s. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy a cinematic orchestrated soundtrack as well, but there's something nostalgic about early MIDI and synthesized game music that I love. Darkseed, for its part, utilizes what appears to be Sound Blaster-based FM synthesis, which, like I just said, is totally in my wheelhouse. Now that being said, the music here is just not all that great. Other than the game's theme song, which is surprisingly unnerving and pretty effective at setting the mood, the rest of the music in the game is just kind of there. And as I reflect on my most recent playthrough, which was literally only a day ago at the time of this recording, I cannot recall a single musical track from the game other than the intro piece. That's not necessarily a bad thing, as some background tracks and music are designed to simply mix in with the gameplay, enhancing the overall experience but not drawing attention to itself. The thing is, that is not the way the music in Dark Seed is. Instead, the music is simply subpar. It does not really enhance the experience at all, and it doesn't stand on its own as something that I would consider listenable. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also not something that I would ever seek out to listen to again. Beyond the music, in a nice touch, the game does include some light voice acting, and here I actually think the game does a nice job. All of the voiced parts, for the most part, sound good. They're definitely not professional voice actor level, but they are good enough to not make it feel like you're playing a corny B-movie starring a bunch of game developers moonlighting as voice actors. I kinda wish there was more dialogue in the game, but as it stands, the voiced parts are limited to only a few lines overall, owing in large part to the fact that there is no real dialogue system in the game, which we will actually talk about in a couple minutes. Bottom line, the music is not really effective in enhancing the experience of playing the game though the voice acting is a nice addition that partly, but not wholly, offsets the game's musical missteps. Moving on to the narrative and story. In Darkseed, you play as Mike Dawson, who just recently purchased and moved into an old, partly dilapidated house. As soon as you move in, you start experiencing traumatic nightmares, and you soon discover that those nightmares may, in fact, be more real than you first assumed. It's up to you to discover the mystery behind those nightmares and, with the help of several notes left over from the house's deceased former owner, figure out how to stop an ancient race of beings from moving into, and potentially taking over, the modern world. I am super conflicted when it comes to the story here, because I actually really liked the general framework for the narrative, and I thought the whole concept was intriguing and worked well. My big issue is the fact that there wasn't more story to consume, or lore to help flesh out the concepts presented in the game. I mentioned it before, but I really felt like there was a ton of potential here that could have turned this into a truly classic, disturbing story. As it stands, though, the story was pretty bare-bones, which is a major issue from my perspective. My general rule of thumb as it relates to adventure games is that the best titles in the genre marry gameplay, puzzles, and narrative into a trinity of awesomeness, and when you have a title that hits it out of the park in all three areas, you have a truly amazing adventure game on your hands. Darkseed really drops the ball on the narrative, which is supremely frustrating because what was there was interesting. It's just that there's not enough of it to really drive the level of engagement needed to support multiple playthroughs, which like we talked about, is absolutely required. Moving on to the playability and controls, let's dive a bit deeper into the overall controls for the title. 
Like I mentioned earlier, the gameplay is driven entirely using a mouse interface, where you click around various scenes to interact with the game world. The overall options you have at your disposal are fairly limited, and are simplified beyond what you might see from contemporary LucasArts and Sierra Adventure titles, in that rather than having a ton of different verb commands, your interactions are limited to either move around, which is represented by an arrow, use, which is represented by a hand, and examine, which is represented by a question mark. Each of those icons change to other icons when you mouse over an interactive part of a scene. For the arrow, the icon changes to a set of four arrows whenever you mouse over a scene transition, like a doorway, indicating that you can move from one room or scene to another. For the use hand, if you mouse over an interactive object, it'll change to a hand with a pointing finger, which means you can actually do something with that object. And for the examine question mark, if you mouse over an interactive hotspot, it'll change to an exclamation mark, which means you can get more information about whatever object you're mousing over. The observant amongst you may notice that one traditional adventure game icon, the talk command, is conspicuously missing. And the reason for that is that there is no dialogue system in the game, despite there being several characters you can interact with. Those interactions are limited to the character reacting to something you're doing in a given scene, at which point they may speak to you. As an example, in the general store in town, you have an option of purchasing several different items. If you try to talk to the clerk, Nothing happens because you don't have a talk command, obviously. The only time the clerk speaks to you is if you try to interact with one of the purchasable objects, at which point the clerk will explain that you need to spend money in order to purchase the item. Similar events occur with other characters throughout the game, like the librarian who will only talk to you if you give her an item, or the police who want nothing more than to arrest you and detain you in a jail cell for the majority of your playtime. Like I mentioned when talking about sound, I wish there was more dialogue in the game, both because I thought the voice acting was actually pretty good, but also because that might have meant that we'd get more story exposition than what the game provides. I'm not going to knock the game for not having a dialogue tree-based system, because that's partly a function of the time that the game was created in. But I will say, from an overall control perspective, that I felt like the gameplay was made a bit too simplistic with effectively only three actions to perform in any given scene. While the game plays out fine with those limitations, psychologically, I felt like something was missing. Overall, though, the game controlled fine, and is pretty much what you would expect from an early 90s point-and-click adventure title. The overall playability of the title, however, is decidedly old-school, and in some instances, unfair to the player. I already talked about how the game uses non-telegraph dead ends, game time progression, and player deaths, so I'm not going to continue to belabor those points here. But just to reiterate, there are some very player-unfriendly gameplay mechanics at play here, including some obtuse game designer logic and cause-effect event associations that are mind-boggling at best and simply illogical at worst. Note that none of the puzzles in the game are complex or difficult, and in fact, the majority of Darkseed's actual puzzles are pretty easy to figure out. The difficult part of the experience is figuring out what the development team wants you to do at any point in the game which is both not obvious and oftentimes borders on illogical conclusions. As an example, early on in the game, you enter a general store in town, like I referenced earlier, and one of your decisions is what, if anything, to buy from that store. There are several objects that you might decide to buy, most of which serve no purpose other than to make you spend money in a way that might cause a future dead-end state. There is one item, though that is tied directly to game progression, which the game only in the most subtle way hints is needed. Actually, no, I take that back. I cannot consider the text that the game gives you a hint in any capacity, other than retrospectively once you know what the item purchase causes to happen. If you had unlimited money, then I could forgive the game on this one, because you could, and probably should, purchase everything that you can, because you never know when a given item will be useful in an adventure game playthrough. With limited funds, though, which equates to three total purchases in the game, two of which are required to beat the game, this feels like something designed to intentionally trap players in an unwinnable state. I can't prove that was the intention, but it sure feels like it. That said, if you put aside the time-driven gameplay mechanics, the dead ends, and the moon logic-based puzzles, the rest of the game is effectively a lightweight traditional point-and-click title, which is fine for what it is. So overall, how did it feel to play Darkseed? 
Well, it's fairly obvious that I've been kind of harsh on Darkseed so far. But honestly, that's only because there is a really good, interesting game here. It's just entirely obscured and marred by some design decisions that, from my perspective, either don't work or are only partially implemented. You might think that the game is entirely devoid of fun, but that's not really the case. In fact, I walked away legitimately enjoying my time with the game, despite all of my critiques. This is not one of those situations where I'm panning a game because it's horrible. This is a situation where I'm critiquing a game because it could have been so, so much more. And it is incredibly disappointing to me that Darkseed was not better put together or more fully developed. If the game was designed more competently, I truly believe this could have been one of the more unique adventure games on the market. And actually, even with its less than stellar design, it's still one of the more unique adventure games on the market. It's just not a game I'll likely seek out for a repeat playthrough. That said, the playthroughs I already completed were interesting, and I found myself strangely wanting more, while at the same time feeling like I didn't need to revisit Darkseed, as designed, at any point in the near or potentially far future. It is a weird mix, and I'd be curious if anyone else felt similarly. If so, definitely let me know. So overall, what is our verdict on Darkseed? Well, by this point, you've probably assumed that Darkseed is not going to make it into our pantheon of classic gaming, and here you would be entirely correct, as the game has too many flaws to really make it into that category. But, while the game is flawed, there is also some goodness to be had here, and I think that if you approach the title with an open mind, you'll find an interesting, albeit light, experience that can be enjoyable. It's also something that you'll likely experience some degree of frustration with, and I would wager a guess that even the most hardcore amongst you will likely reach for a guide at some point during your playthrough. That itself isn't an issue. What is problematic is the fact that the game does not do enough good to outweigh the frustrating elements, though like I mentioned before, it still has its fun moments. Which is why for me, Darkseed is a pretty solid mediocre mention. I cannot recommend it to the broader population, because it's simply too rough around the edges, but for individuals who enjoy point-and-click adventure games and don't mind some frustrating and illogical game design, I truly believe you can have some fun here. I don't think anyone is likely going to name Darkseed to their best games of all time list, but I also don't think the issues are so egregious that you should avoid the title. It's simply one of those games that will only appeal to a small subset of the gaming community, and even then, will likely turn some players off. Regardless, I do think there's something here. It's just hidden far beneath the surface, which is why for me, Darkseed just became our newest addition to our list of mediocre mentions. was our episode on Darkseed. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you all to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the full motion video classic, Night Trap. 
So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave us a review on whatever podcast service or engine that you're currently using to listen to the podcast. This is not about trying to bolster star counts or harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means I'm doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to deliver the best possible podcast that I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you to make sure that I'm delivering the content that you want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I want to make sure that I can continue to deliver the content you all want and continue to create the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Night Trap. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.